Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So let's jump right into it. So today I'm carrying on the series that I began a few weeks ago called The Bless Lifestyle. And we've been going through this acrostic, B-L-E-S-S, and what it is about is the most accessible, natural, easy way for anybody, introvert or extrovert, to share their faith, and above all, it's actually biblical. So here's how it works. The B stands for begin with prayer. The L is listen with care. The E is eat together. The S stands for share in love, and the last S is, or serve in love, rather, and the last... S is share your story. So week one, we started with beginning with prayer and how the scripture tells us, first of all, to pray for all men, those in authority, that they may come to God and to the knowledge of the truth. So that's the first one. Last week, we talked about listening and that we need to listen before we speak. And of course, this listening one isn't necessarily step two. It's something you do all the way along the way. And so today we're going to talk about eating together. And you know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this week when I started thinking about this, I thought, how am I going to do a whole series or a whole message on eat together? I mean, that's not a whole message. I thought, everybody, we don't talk about eat together, we just do it, right? I mean, you live together, what do you do? You eat together. It's sort of that simple. But then the more I thought about it, the more significant I thought it was, and I realized, you know, what we do in our families, we live together, so we eat together, and what happens when the family begins to break down? What's the first thing to go? The first thing to go is you stop eating together. You know, it was, it was Rodney Dangerfield that had this line. He had said this. He said, hey, we have separate bedrooms. We eat our meals apart. We take separate vacations. We're doing everything we can to keep our marriage together. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking about that because it is really true. When our family starts to go south, we stop eating together. And you probably have somebody in your family, either immediate or maybe your extended family, that no longer will eat together with you. Don't put up your hand. I have a brother. I have an estranged brother, and he will no longer come to a meal. He won't even respond to the invitations anymore. So you know what I'm talking about. As goes the eating together, so goes the family, and vice versa. You know, we have this uh, fellow in the church. I don't know if he's here right here or if he was the first service. His name is Ed, and he is one of 18 brothers and sisters. So in other words, typical southern Manitoba Mennonite family. <laughs> but here's what's unique about him and his family. was uh, He and his siblings get together and have dinner every single month. 18 plus their spouses have been doing this for decade after decade after decade, and they never miss. They do it every month. It's a remarkable story to me. And the youngest, the baby, just turned 70. And so, I mean, these are not young people. They've been doing this forever. And they do it because they understand the value of the family. Always makes me think of this joke. Uh, uh, What's the difference between a man with 18 children and a man with $18 million? The one with 18 children doesn't want any (laughs) more. So this is actually a true story. I actually told that joke once, only I used 10, 10 children and, and $10 million and said, said the one with 10 children doesn't want any more. And at the end of the service, this woman came up to me, marched up to me and said, Pastor Mark, I have a question for you. Which one of my 13 children shouldn't I have had? <laughs> to which I said, I don't know. 
I don't know all your children. <laughs> I'm such a smart aleck, right? So what we find when we look into scripture is that we found that one of Jesus' strategies, in fact, one of his great strategies was eating together with people. So we all know that he had 12 disciples and he gathered these 12 men and they traveled together, they ministered together, they lived together, and guess what? They ate together. And about halfway through his ministry, one day he announces to them, I no longer call you servants, I now call you Friends, he calls them friends. You spend time with people, you spend time eating together, guess what? Uh, Servants become friends. And then at the end of his ministry, you all remember they had the Passover meal. We know it as the Last Supper. And he got these men together the last time, just he and the twelve, and they got together and they had, had this meal together, which is absolutely famous, and everybody understands the Last Supper. Here's what is interesting. The Passover meal was the most important meal in Jewish culture, and is even to this day. And it was a meal that you would share with your family. Now, their families were all back still in Galilee, all of them. And so he shared this meal with these men because these men were no longer servants. They were no longer friends. They were now family. They were now his brothers. And so that's the basis in which we're going to talk today about how when we eat together, things change. So I want to tell you a little bit about uh, our staff here. We have this great staff. We have 50 people on staff. I was thinking about this. I have a bigger staff than Jesus had. And that's because I need a lot more help. <laughs> but not to mention, Jesus didn't have a TV ministry. And uh, so we have this staff. And it's a big group of people. And what we want is we want good relationships. We actually want them to be friends. Because we know if our staff will be friends, there'll be greater morale and greater attitudes. And, and, and this relationship, it creates synergy. And we become a very uh, productive organization because people are friends. So we have staff that play volleyball together every week. We have staff that play floor hockey together every week. But once a month, what we do is we close the office down the middle of the day for two hours. We close it down. We go to one of the rooms and we order in food and we all sit down and we eat together and we have a meal together, obviously, and we play a game together. And we do, we call it a unity lunch. People look forward to it. They get free food. People love free food. And so anyway, I got to tell you this story, what happened last Christmas, because it was kind of unique. So it's about three, four days before Christmas. We're doing our unity lunch. We ordered in the food from a restaurant, which I will not mention its name, although I probably should. And what happened, this is, a, this is crazy. What happened is somehow the food was infected with the norovirus. Now, the norovirus is this highly contagious virus, and the only guess we can make is that the food preparation people, or at least one of them, was sick and was you know, sneezing on the food, or who knows what happens. So anyway, the food came down, and almost every single, we had 45 people there, and 40 of the 45 people within a day were sick. Right before Christmas, they were all sick. And I mean, they were really sick. They were vomiting out of both ends, if you know what I mean. I mean, it was going on in the North Pole and in the South Pole. And they were blowing chunks up top. And there was thunder down under. And, you know, I mean, it it was all going on. I'm just trying to paint a picture so you're real clear what was happening. And everybody was really, really sick. And you imagine, there's 45 of us and 40 are sick. And then those 40 went home and got their families sick. And so everybody's sick. It's just before Christmas. And here's the big, the, you know, we were really concerned about it because people thought, you know, somebody's trying to kill us. Somebody's trying to take us out. 
I mean, it seemed like it. It seemed like some sort of conspiracy that somebody, some, someone was trying to stop Church of the Rock and trying to kill off the staff. At first, we thought it has to be the Russians, right? <laughs> but, but now we know it was India. <laughs> I'm kidding, people. Cut me some slack here, man. <laughs> Thank you for getting that. So anyway, here's the miraculous part of that story. There was only five people that didn't get sick. They were two two sound techs, uh, our TV producer, our worship leader, Derek, and me, the preacher. And so on Christmas Eve, when we did our service, the people that we needed, the absolute bare minimum to make that thing happen were actually all well. And so we felt like that was just an absolute miracle. But then in January, for our next Unity lunch, nobody wanted to eat the food. <laughs> the food came, and it was, they were all nervous. And so anyway, we got it figured out. We have a new grace that we say. It's right out of Mark chapter 16. And it says, and you shall eat deadly poison, and it shall not harm you. <laughs> so that's, that's now how we have begun to pray. So we're going to look at Jesus' methodology when it came to eating together. We are in Luke chapter 5. Fascinating story that you all know, but I'm going to look at it, I think, in a very different light than you've thought about before. So Luke chapter 5, verse 27 says this. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and their Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, we've all read that story about this tax collector named Levi. And let me me sort of inform you of something that you may or may not know. Is that Levi and Matthew, the apostle, are the same person. And that disciple that wrote the Gospel of Matthew, same person as Levi, you say, well, why is he called something else? Well, you will discover that many of these people both had Greek and Hebrew names. And so Levi was his Hebrew name. Matthew was his his Greek name. We have Simon and Peter, same person. Thomas and Didymus, same person. Jesus and Yeshua, or Joshua, same person. Jesus was his Greek name. Yeshua was his Hebrew name. So that's just to clarify who this Levi was. And so what happens is we have uh, 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 Matthew. He comes to Christ uh, and he becomes a follower. He becomes this dedicated disciple of Jesus and spent three and a half years with him. And then it says, then he held a feast for him at his own house. Now, Don't think for a minute that it was the same day. The way it's written, because it just follows right in the last sentence, it seems like it was that day he held a feast. It probably wasn't that day. It could have been days, it could have been weeks later. And here's what I think happened. I'm just speculating. But I think what Jesus did and said, okay, you know, Matthew, I think we have a great opportunity here. I mean, you know all these tax collectors. You hang out with these guys. What do you say we do an outreach event and you invite all these scoundrel friends of yours and I'll show up because I would love to meet these guys. And so that's what he did. And he has this feast. And there's this great number of tax collectors and others there. Because Matthew would have known all these people. And so they all gathered. And there's Jesus right smack in the middle of them. 
So then the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, they lose their minds over this. And they said, what are you doing? What's, what's your master doing? Hanging out with tax collectors and hanging out with sinners. And they're just like incensed. And of course, don't miss the fact that, that Jesus points out and says, you know, he gives them this little explanation. He says, you know, people who are well don't need a doctor, right? It's people who are sick that need a doctor. And people who are righteous don't need to repent, but those who are sinners need to. And so there's a bit of irony in there because, you know, the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees were not near as righteous as they thought they were. So there's a little bit of irony there. But here's what you need to understand about tax collectors. Tax collectors were the absolute worst. And if you think about it, they still are today, right? <laughs> I mean, tax collectors were absolutely considered the lowest of the low. And t- today it'd be compared to like the used car salesmen, right? You know, or, oh, I could include lawyers or politicians if you want, but I'm trying to give them a break today. But, but just to paint the picture for you, these, peop- these tax collectors were considered the quintessential sinner. And I'll tell you why. They were actually Jewish men that worked for the Roman government to extract taxes from the Jewish people to give to the Romans so that they could continue to hold these people in occupation. So you can imagine why, when it came to thinking of what a sinner was, the sinner, in their minds, the worst of the worst, was the tax collector. And Jesus is hanging out with the sinners. And so the tax collectors, he's hanging out with them, he's eating with them, and just so you know, this isn't the only time this happened. There's another story where Jesus broke bread with another tax collector. And I just want to add this one to the mix. And you all remember the story. It's probably a couple of years later. And Jesus, by this time, his fame has gone out. People know who he is. And big crowds are gathering around. And there's a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And what was unique about Zacchaeus? He was short. And so maybe you can't stop this guy from collecting your taxes, but you know what we can do? We can stop him from seeing Jesus. And all he wanted to do was catch your glimpse. And he kept on kind of poking through the crowd. And these guys, these guys were all blocking him out. They wouldn't let him. I mean, maybe they couldn't stop this guy. But they could stop him from seeing Jesus. Which I think is sort of funny. And so then Zacchaeus realizes he's not going to win this battle. He's too small. He's not going to get through these, these big burly Hebrew men. So he goes and climbs up the sycamore tree. So he's hanging in the sycamore tree waiting for Jesus to come by. And Jesus comes by and walks by and sees him up in the tree. You all remember this. He looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. For today I must go to your house. And he went to Zacchaeus' house. And he broke bread with Zacchaeus. He had a meal with him and all of his tax collector buddies. And whoever else he knew. And so we don't actually know what Jesus said during that time. We just know they ate together and they were obviously conversing. And all of a sudden... Zacchaeus does something really strange and he stands up and he says, I've made this decision that I'm going to give half my goods to the poor and if I've wronged any man, I'm going to repay him fourfold. Now, I have a question for you. Did Jesus tell him to do that? Uh, There's no record that Jesus told him to do that. I think if he had told him, it would have said he told him. Not only that, there's no command. You don't have to do that. This was something Zacchaeus came up on his own. You say, why did he come up with that? I'll tell you why. Because when you encounter Jesus, Jesus has the power to change you. And this is what happens. And this is why people need to encounter Jesus. This is why they need to meet Jesus. Because even without hearing a word, if they will meet Jesus, if they will encounter Jesus, things happen. And so all Jesus did, his simple strategy, was to go 
eat with sinners. Not only tax collectors, but prostitutes and all kinds of other people. And he ate with these people. And so then what happened, he's got a bit of a reputation. Remember this? And what did they accuse Jesus of being? A friend of? A friend of sinners. Do you know why they called him that? Do you know why they accused him of being a, a friend of sinners? Anybody know? Because he was a friend of sinners. Aren't you glad you come to church and you learn this stuff? Well, I figured this stuff up. I spend hours figuring this stuff out and I share it with you. So they called him a friend of sinners because he was a friend of sinners. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus never treated anyone like a spiritual project. He never, no one was ever an evangelistic project. Do you know that nobody wants to be a project? Nobody wants to be your project? And that's why I always tell people, I warn them. I say, you know what you should do? You should not evangelize your friends. You should enjoy your friends. I mean, there's something powerful about this. If we begin to enjoy our friends, then, you know, the evangelism thing is secondary to that. And that's where you start. So I got to tell you something interesting. So, so some of you know that uh, I play tennis in the summer. I'm with this men's group, a very diverse group of men that I play tennis with. I'm going to tell you this part right up at the front. A bunch of them came to church this morning and sat in the front row at the first service. And I thought, when I, as soon as I saw them there, I thought, I'm going to tell them this story. And so, so anyway, these guys, I play with them. And, and what happens is we're from different backgrounds. And I'll tell you, they have no framework of church. This is not something most of them really do. It's not, they're not in church on Sunday morning. They're on the tennis court on Sunday morning. And so, you know, they're doctors and they're dentists and they're lawyers and they're different people of different professions and a unique and diverse group of people. Everybody's different. They're different. But I'm an anomaly in the midst because I'm the only preacher they know. And so every year we end up having a meal together. And we're sitting down and having this meal. And of course you start shooting the breeze. And these guys, because they don't have any real spiritual framework of church, they always start to ask me these really kind of bizarre questions. But they want to know what is it I do. And so this summer, true story. So, so one of them says to me, so are you like one of those televangelists? Do you own a jet? And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I don't own a jet. The church owns the jet. <laughs> and then another one says, I bet, you, I bet you stand up there and you ask people to give you all their money. I said, no, that would be greed to ask them for all their money. I just asked for 10%. I let them keep the rest of it. And then another one said, I bet you, I bet you tell stories about us. I bet you come here and then you go back on Sunday morning and you tell stories about us. I said, absolutely. I'm just doing research here on the reprobate lifestyles of you degenerate heathens. And I said, if you play your cards right, you'll be in Sunday sermon. So they show up this morning and they're in Sunday sermon. <laughs> How good is that? And by the way, they loved it that I was talking about them. <laughs> but see, here's what I don't want you to miss about this story. I'm actually not trying to evangelize them. I'm trying to enjoy them. I've actually become friends with these men. And when you become friends with people, things change. And that is the secret. That's why the E stands for eat together. And let me tell you what the researchers showed us on this because it's quite fascinating. We never think about that there is even research on this, but there is. And when you break bread with someone, when you eat together, they've discovered that what it does is it actually changes the perceptions people have of inequalities. Particularly what it does is it rad radically changes people's perspectives on race, on culture, on religion, and socioeconomic background. And what it becomes, eating together, this is true and you probably know this, is what it does is it becomes the great equalizer. All of a sudden, people 
become equal when you eat together. And probably everybody in this room will remember the most famous speech of Martin Luther King Jr. It was the I Have a Dream speech. Probably one of the most famous uh, speeches, not only in U.S. history, but in world history. And I'm not going to obviously quote the whole thing, but there's an excerpt I want to share with you that probably most of you remember, and I think it makes my point. So he says this in his speech. He said, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and it will live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream today. And what he was talking about, if you caught those two stanzas, the first one was, I have a dream that all men would be treated equal. And I have a dream that they will sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And you see, what happens is when you have equality, you eat together. And when you eat together, you develop equality. And let me tell you a personal story about this that I think will illustrate it perfectly. So Kathy and I have this, this friend, and, and there's no other way to describe him, that he's an eccentric, and he is the most diverse and eclectic group of friends you could ever imagine, people from every strata and every socioeconomic background, you, you name it. And uh, he invited us to this dinner party, and uh, I looked around, and there were all these unusual, disparate people. I thought, these people shouldn't be together in the same room. These people are all from different worlds and different backgrounds, uh, different religions, you name it. And he had gathered them all together for this very unique dinner. And so then he did something even more eccentric. He didn't let us sit with our spouse. He broke us all up and he assigned seating. He has this great big huge round table in his dining room. And he put us all at different seats with different people that maybe we knew or didn't know, but certainly not with our spouses. And so I ended up at this table between these two men, and one I'll call Larry, and the other one I'll call Lawrence. And so Larry was on my left hand, Lawrence was on my right hand, and Larry is a house painter. Larry uh, actually only works enough to buy boat, uh, gas for his boat and bait for his fishing line, and that's what he loves to do, fish. Actually, he likes to do three things. He likes to paint, fish, and drink. Not necessarily in that order. And anyway, so, so that's Larry. And on the other side of me is Lawrence, and Lawrence is the CEO and president of one of the biggest companies and most profitable companies in all of Winnipeg. And so I'm looking at these two men, and I think, I can't believe how diverse these two guys are. And of course, I'm probably closer to Larry than I am to Lawrence, and you kind of know that. But nevertheless, there I was in the midst, and the whole table was like that. And you know what got me was this is that this, this moment of sitting together was a great equalizer because we all ate the same food, we all listened to the same stories, and we all laughed at the same jokes. We were all brought together at the same level and on the same plane. Why? For the simple reason that we had eaten together. Now, it's not the only great equalizer in society. There's another one for men. There's this, the locker room the locker room, you get men in nothing but towels, that's an equalizer. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no strata in there. Everybody's on the same plane. You came, came into this world naked. You're going to leave this world naked. You put every many, everyone in towels. You're all equal, man. That's just the way it is. However, I'm not recommending that as an outreach event. <laughs> 
I'm just pointing out there's only a few things in life that really make us equal, and eating together is one of them. But it does remind me of this story. So these guys have gone and they played a golf game, and they were finished their game getting back into their work clothes. They're in the locker room. They've got the towels on. There's a cell phone sitting on the bench. It starts ringing and ringing and ringing. Finally, a guy walks over, and he pushes the button and says, hello, and it's on speakerphone. And on the other end, there's this woman, and she just starts talking. She says, hi, honey, it's me. I'm down at Bloomingdale's, and they've got the sale on that fur coat I was looking at. It's on sale for only $4,000. Should I buy it? And he says, well, if you like it. And then she just immediately goes on and says, and the Mercedes dealer called, and they've got the new 450 SL, but they only have three, and they're $120,000. What do you think? Should we get it? And he says, well, you know, I mean, at that price. And so she says, oh, and one more thing. I talked to the real estate agent, and the house we were looking at was $2.8 million. It's now down to 2.5. I think we should put an offer on it. What do you think? He says, well, you only live once. Then she says, okay, thanks, honey. Goodbye. Click, gone. So then he picks up that cell phone holds it up in the air and says, does anybody know whose cell phone this is? Because your wife is totally out of control. <laughs> so when we look at this thing called breaking bread, here, here's my point. Breaking bread breaks down barriers. And I want to tell you a sort of fascinating story that happened to me a few years ago. I was... Uh, invited to speak at a, uh, an event, a conference, and they wanted to talk about evangelism. And for whatever reason, they decided to hold it at the, at the Salvation Army Lighthouse Mission. And those of you that know our downtown know where that is. It's right in the corner of Maine and Higgins, right smack in the middle of Skid Row. And it's right there, this mission. Some of you have maybe been there or volunteered there or whatever. And I'd actually never been there before. And uh, they had a four-day conference. They asked me to come once a day. I wasn't actually part of the conference. I was a guest speaker. They asked me to come and speak it on evangelism. And they said, we want you to come and we want you to speak for an hour every day at 11 o'clock till 12 o'clock. And we're wondering if you can come and do that. So I did that. And so I thought, well, this would be interesting. So I went down there and I was in the Salvation Army uh, mission every day from 11 to 12. And one of the unusual things was we held it in the, or they held it in the chapel. And so it was all these pastors and they're all dressed in suits and different things. And one of the things they did, for whatever reason, I don't know, but they invited the homeless people to come to the conference if they wanted. And so at any given session, there'd be 30 or 40 pastors in the room and four or five homeless people sitting in the back listening in, which was kind of cool. I thought that was neat to be inclusive like that. So anyway, I was there day after day. Uh, and I was going and doing my one hour and talking about evangelism. Then on the last day, on the Friday, I finished my session, and there had been a woman, a homeless woman, who had been there at every one of these sessions. And uh, she came up to me after the session, and she said, can I talk to you a moment? And I said, sure. She says, I need to say something to you. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I said, you know, funnily enough, I hear that all the time. But uh, she says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know anything about us. You don't know anything about this community. You don't know anything about this world that we live in. And she says, I have some advice for you. I have an offer to make you. Why don't you come and live down here? for a weekend with us. Why don't you this weekend spend the weekend here with us and find out who we really are and what really makes us tech? And so I said, oh, you know, 
I, I would do that, but I don't think my wife will let me. <laughs> That's the first excuse. And I said, and you know, I have little kids at home, and I, I got to take them to soccer. And, and I have a car. It's parked on the street at a meter. I, I, I can't stay here all weekend. I was making one excuse after another. And I realized what a wimp I'd been at being a total wuss about this. And it was a legitimate offer. Come and see what we're all about. So then I, I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't I go have lunch with you? Where are you having lunch? She said, I'm, I'm going to the dining room here. And I said, would it be okay if I joined you at least for lunch? Because it was new. And she said, yeah, that would be a good idea. Come do that. So I went and sat at this table with this group of homeless people. And uh, I had nothing to offer. And instead, I just said, why don't you tell me your stories? And these homeless people began to tell me their stories about how they had ended up on the street and the kind of life they had brought up. And I'm telling you, every single one of these stories was heart-wrenchingly painful. And I didn't say a word to them because, you know what, I had nothing to say. But I just listened to them, and I thought, I can sit here and eat with these people. And by doing so, we all start to get at a new level, and everything changes. Because when you break bread together, you break down barriers. Now, I want to kick this up one more notch, because we know this, that, that the great commandment, both Old Testament and New Testament, it's the same. And the great commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Both Old Testament and New Testament, you know that. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kicked it up to another level. And you all know this because you've read my book, A Greater Perspective, right? And so Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor... And hate your enemy. But I say to you, you must love your enemy. He said, I must love your enemy. And Jesus is the only one of any world religion ever that has declared and told his followers that their responsibility was actually to love their neighbor. Not to tolerate their, love their enemy rather. Not to tolerate them, but to actually love them. Not to just forgive them, but to love them. I mean, that is a very, very, very high bar. And so... Here's an interesting story for you. Uh, during the, after the Civil War, the Civil War was a terrible time because you had a nation fighting each other. You had you know, brothers and people right across the lane or right across the river fighting each other in this battle, and this battle raged on. And Abraham Lincoln was the president at the time. Finally, the war ended, and, and he was trying to make some peace of this, and he did something very unusual as a Christian man. What he was doing was he was pardoning the enemy. And he was pardoning these people, pardoning these generals, and pardoning these confederates. And he had an advisor come to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, what are you doing? Do you not wish to destroy your enemy? To which he said, isn't that what I do when I make them my friend? You see, that's a very powerful thing. And, and not only, how do, you, how do you make your enemy your friend? And I'll tell you how you do it. You have to sit down at the table of brotherhood. You have to sit down and have a meal together. So I want to tell you one final story here uh, that most of you will not know, and, I, and I'm quite certain I've never told it here. But so 30 years ago, the year is 1993, and I tried, a, I tried my hand at politics, and some of you may or may not know that. How many of you knew that I ran in the 1993 federal election? How many of you knew that? So uh, the, just a minority of people here, but I did. I ran. And just so you know my politics, people always ask me, Pastor Mark, what, what are your politics? Well, let me tell you. I was a reformer. I was part of the Reform Party. I was a reformer then. I'm still a reformer today. I have not changed my politics. I'm still that same guy. You say, Pastor Mark, the Reform Party doesn't exist anymore. I know. I didn't leave the party. The party left me, is what happened. 
And so those are, those are my politics. I, I ran in this, this uh, campaign uh, for Winnipeg South, one of the biggest ridings in Winnipeg. I ran in this very high-profile thing. Here's a couple of news clips. I mean, I mean, look at that picture. Can you believe it? I have not changed in 30 years. How is it that a man doesn't age? It's crazy. I look exactly the same then as I do now. I was wrinkly then, and I'm wrinkly today. It's, 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 I know you're all thinking it, so I just decided to point it out. But we had quite a formidable campaign, and uh, we, had, uh, we did it exceptionally well. I was probably the premier candidate in, in, the, in the city of Winnipeg. The Reform Party was brand new. We were breaking through. We actually elected 52 people uh, in that particular election. And so we were breaking through, and because I was sort of a high-profile candidate in the fact that I was making a lot of noise, and I had a very good team behind me, and we had a great campaign, I w- we were in all of these debates. Uh, I, I did 21 debates. And we were on television, and I was in high schools, and I was in community centers, and we went to the university. 21 debates. And so my opponents, one of whom whom was the incumbent, and and another couple of high-profile challenger. And so we went around doing these debates. And if there was one thing that really bugged me about the political arena is this, and it's the duplicitous nature of it where they say one thing to one group and another thing to another group, and that's exactly what happened. So we would go to, let's say, St. Paul's High School or Catholic Boys' School, and these candidates would all be pro-life. And then the next day, we'd be at the University of Manitoba, and they'd all be pro-choice. And I thought to myself, I can't play this game. And I am not going to obfuscate the truth. And I am going to speak the truth. And if people don't like it, that's their problem. And if people ask me a question, I'm going to give them my answer. And I'm going to give the same answer to this person, that person, or the next person. And I'm going to maintain my integrity. And if I lose the election for telling the truth, so, so be it. So, so, so guess what happened? Yeah, yeah, I lost the election. <laughs> Turns out telling the truth is not a great political strategy. Uh, but anyway, I tried my best, and I, and I gave it a go. And so we were spending all this time with, the, with each other, and I, I discovered something about politics. See, I've been in ministry for quite a few years, and ministry is not always easy. It's not always an easy run. People criticize you, they judge you, they call you names. I mean, it's a tough place, you know? You're dealing with human beings, and people's emotions get riled up. And uh, I, then I go into politics, and I realize it's actually worse and it's far more toxic and far more acrimonious in the political arena than it is in the ministry. And I thought, these people don't even know me. They don't even know me. And they're criticizing and insulting me and calling my names. At least in the church, I'm criticized by people I love. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure that's somehow better. But, but you, you get the point. So anyway, long story short, so I run this election. I finished a close second, by the way. It was a great campaign, and I was pretty happy about that. But I'm telling you, it did leave a sort of a bitter taste in my mouth. The whole experience, like I said, it was very adversarial. It was very acrimonious. And uh, I realized after the election that I had resentment in my heart, and particularly towards the winner. And the person who won the, the election was a man by the name of Reg Alcock. And uh, Reg, here's a picture of him. He actually became a very important figure in the cabinet. Uh, he was the minister responsible for the Treasury Board. And he, he was this imposing figure. He was about six and, six and a half feet tall. At one point, he was 400 pounds. And I'm not just making that number up. He had this booming voice. And, uh, of course, he went on to a very kind of illustrious political career. 
And I, I kind of was sitting by watching this happen a couple of months have gone by, and I thought to myself, I think I have resentment towards this man in my heart for what had happened during the campaign. And I thought, you know what? That's not my style. That's not how I roll. Because you know what I do? I forgive everybody. I forgive everybody all the time. So I decided I knew what I had to do. And so what I did was, it was a couple months after, like I said, I phoned him up. Uh, We didn't really know each other because we had only debated each other. And I saw him in, in the debate setting, but I never saw him on any other level. We would say hi at the beginning or the end of the debate, but we really didn't interact on a personal level. So I only knew him as far as him being an adversary. So I phoned him up and I said, I'd really like to have lunch with you. Would you let me buy you lunch? So he agreed, and the two of us went to a restaurant, and we sat down, and, and we, we, we joked a little bit about the election and some of the things that had happened, and I congratulated him on his win and different things. And then I spent some time to actually get to know him. And then as we talked, here's what happened, because we're breaking bread together. And as we talked, I started to realize that I actually liked this guy on a personal level, that I could actually be his friend. Because breaking bread breaks down Barriers. And you know what? I've discovered something. That the reason people don't like each other is because they don't actually know each other. And you know what ended up happening? I ended up becoming friends with him. These two adversaries, these two political adversaries, actually on a personal level, ended up as friends. And then what happened was a couple of years later, uh, we had bought our first building. It was, a cor- it was a, at 2211 Pemina Highway. Today it's a shopper's drug mart on the corner of Markham and Pemina Highway. But we owned that building. It was our church. It was our first building we owned. We were, have the, were having the grand opening. And I thought to myself, who should I invite to be our special guest at our grand opening? And I thought, I know. I'll invite our member of parliament, my friend, Reg Alcock. So I invited him not just to come. I invited him to come and speak. And he got up on the stage at our grand opening, and he said all kinds of lovely things about me. He told me how much he respected me, and he told me, you know, how, how, you know, just a bunch of really nice things, and congratulated us on this building, and said some nice things. And then he went and sat down in that building approximately right there. So he went and sat down, and then I stood up there, and I preached my guts out. And I wasn't preaching directly at him. But I, t- I t- told the story of Daniel in Babylon. Daniel in the world of politics and dealing with that and always standing firm and being true to himself and true to what he believed and how he survived Babylon by being true to himself. And I really preached it. I threw it down that day. And so then, I'll never forget this. So then Reg gets up to his feet. I just finished preaching. I just walked down the stairs. Reg gets out of his seat and he strides over those giant hands of his and he shook my hand vigorously and he said, Mark, that was a hell of a good speech. <laughs> to which I said, well, thanks, Reg. That's not the way I would have put it, but, but, but th- thank you for, for enjoying that. And we ended up, these two political adversaries, as I said, became friends because what? We ate together and broke bread together. And then what happened was a few years later, 2008, he had a heart attack in the Winnipeg airport and fell to the ground and and passed away. I remember how heartbroken I was. And I remember thinking I had lost a friend that day. And you see, here's the secret to this. We live in this world of broken people that are not so much different than us. They're really no different than us. 
And they need Jesus as much as the next guy. And Mother Teresa once said this, the problem with the world is we draw the circle of the family too small. Well, at the very least, we draw the circle of our friends too small. And what would happen if we began to reach out to the world, begin to love people, and simply sat down together at the table of brotherhood? Because breaking bread breaks down barriers. Let's stand together. I want to ask you all to do a favor for me. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And I know in a room this size, I don't know all of you, and I know in a room this size there's people that have never developed that relationship with Jesus like Zacchaeus did and like Matthew did and like Mary Magdalene did and a host of other people. And if you're here today and you've never had the opportunity to meet Jesus on a personal level, meaning inviting him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. But right where you are, I want you to ask this question. Do you know him? Do you know him as a friend? Do you know him as a Savior? Have you invited him into your life? And if you have done, not done that, I, I, I'm going to give you this opportunity. Here's what I'm going to do. I won't single you out. I'll call you forward. We never ask people to say anything publicly. It's very anonymous, and right where you are, every eye closed. If today you'd like to make that decision to invite Jesus into your heart, I just want you to slip up your hand. Just slip it up right now. Once I've seen it, you can put it down again. Thank you, son. Thank you in the middle. Thank you in the side. Thank you on the other side. Anybody else want to join these folks? Lots of hands this morning. Take a moment. All right, fantastic. Okay, you can all put your hands down. I, I didn't see all your hands, so it doesn't matter. Jesus saw them. And so we're going to say this prayer together. And so let's do this with the people who raised their hands. Would you mind doing that? I'll lead you and we'll all say this together. If, if you feel this is what you want to do, I ask that you'd say this together with us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, and thank you for the work of the cross. That you died for my sin. And you washed it all away. And then you rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be not only my Lord, but to be my friend. You have made me your friend. And I thank you that I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm a friend of Jesus. And I'm on my way to heaven. And I thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Let's give him a big shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.